Great to be back with you uh, again one more Sunday in our Back to the Basics series. Uh, I want to just remind us all that we are still in the season of, of Easter. We are still focusing on the resurrection. By my count, this is the third Sunday after Easter, and we want to continue to be mindful of the amazing love that our God demonstrated to us when he sent his son to sacrifice his own life for us and then raised him from the dead. For those of you that were here last week, uh, we talked about the love of God towards us, the fact that we are recipients of God's unfailing, sacrificial, and extravagant love. Not just us, but all of his creation is a recipient of the love of God. And then further, we saw that we become stewards of that love. Uh, it's not just for us to absorb and hold on to or hoard. No, our love is to be spread around. And we used the analogy of a mirror in the sunlight, in the bright sunlight, where a mirror in and of itself has no light in it. But if a mirror is directed towards the sun so that the sunlight reflects on it, then that can be shifted around and that light can be shown in different directions. And so with the love of God that we receive from him, we are called on to be reflecting that love in our world. We saw in 1 John 4.19, a very short and simple verse that says, we love because he first loved us. In and of ourselves, we cannot muster anything that resembles the kind of love that God has for us and the kind of love that he wants us to reflect around us. And then we started last week to look at these three commands that Jesus refers to in the Gospels, either, either by um, taking something from the Old Testament and affirming it and breathing new life into it, as with what Jesus called the first and greatest commandment for us to love God with everything in us. So we receive this love from God and then we reflect it right back to him. That may sound a little weird, but if you're a parent, you know exactly what I'm talking about, right? You raise your children and you, 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 you shower them with love and then at certain times that love comes back to you. Your own children express in certain ways their love for you as a parent. And in, indeed, that is a poor example, but an example of us reflecting that love back to our God who has loved us in such an abundant way. And so we looked at that first and greatest commandment last week. And today we're going to look at what Jesus calls the second commandment. And then we are going to conclude by looking at what Jesus calls a new commandment. Three different commandments, each with a very distinctive target for us to reflect our love upon. So our, our primary scripture this morning is from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 10, uh, verses 25 to 37. Most of us will know this as the parable of the Good Samaritan. I will read for us Luke chapter 10, starting in verse 25. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law, he replied. How do you read it? He answered, 
Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind. And love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself. So he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? In reply to this, Jesus said, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So to a Levite, when he came to the place, he saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came to where the man was, And when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, poured on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave it to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I'll reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. Pray with me, please. God, as we approach your word today, we approach with humility, expectation, and a desire to hear from you. God, I pray that you will open our eyes and our hearts to whatever you have for us in your word. Your word is truth. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. So before we dive into this passage, just parenthetically, I want to point out something. Last week, we were looking at the passage in Matthew chapter 22, where Jesus has the same interchange with this expert in the law. That's the Jewish law that this uh, individual is an expert in. And in that particular passage, Matthew writes for us that Jesus calls this commandment to love God with everything in us, the first and greatest commandment. And then Jesus goes on to say, and the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. Okay, so Matthew and Luke are both writing about this same interchange that Jesus had. But I want us to to hang on to what Jesus says in Matthew where he says, this is the first and greatest commandment, this is the second commandment. That's going to be important as we move through the passage today, even though Luke does not use those exact words. As we we watch this interchange between Jesus and this lawyer, there seems to be some apparent agreement between the two of them, because the question is asked, what's the greatest commandment? And Jesus says, this is what it is. And the guy's like, yeah, I agree with you. And they seem to end up on some common ground. And as I look at the passage today, um, when, when they have this agreement, I think, why doesn't the lawyer just walk away at that point and say, good, Jesus and I agree with each other. But no, in verse 29, we read, but he wanted to justify himself. So he asked Jesus, and, and who is my neighbor? So, so right away, Luke is revealing to us some stuff about this lawyer. Okay? He wasn't just there out of curiosity. You know, he wanted Jesus to put his stamp of approval, so to speak, 
on his version of who his neighbor was. And we know as we look in Scripture at these, uh, these religious leaders, these Jewish religious leaders, and these uh, teachers of the law, um, that this guy pretty much wanted Jesus to affirm that his view of neighbor, which is based on affinity or similarity, people that are kind of like me at least, and at least share my spiritual beliefs, uh, and certainly my ethnicity, this person, if they're my neighbor, they need to be the same, of the same ethnicity as me, and it, it would help if my social socioeconomic status and my neighbors are similar to each other so we can understand one another, and certainly we have to have the same political views. And so Jesus is asked by this Pharisee, this, this teacher of the law, to affirm those things and those beliefs. And so he asks the question, so who is my neighbor? Now, Jesus obviously knows exactly where this guy is coming from. And rather than just call him out for his very narrow definition of neighbor, Jesus tells a story. And for those of us that are familiar with the New Testament, we know that these stories Jesus tells are called parables. And Jesus tells a lot of them in the Gospels, and the people loved to listen to the parables of Jesus. But these parables are, are unique. I think of a parable as I would think of a work of art where the artist chooses exactly what's in it, what color, what, what, what's going to, this, this, this piece of art is portraying, and then the artist paints it exactly the way she or he wants that work of art to be. Every detail is at the discretion of the artist. And that's exactly how Jesus crafts these parables. Every detail has purpose. Every word has meaning. And we'll see that as we look at this parable today. Jesus is creating this just for this one guy. But thankfully, we get to listen in on it. So Jesus starts and he says, there's a traveler going down this road between two cities. And Jesus names the cities. Jerusalem, which is the hub of spiritual and economic life for the Jewish people is at one end, and the traveler is traveling from Jerusalem to another Jewish city called Jericho. And then in the course of telling this story, this parable, Jesus puts two other travelers along the road, and he identifies them as a priest and a Levite. So clearly, these are Jewish religious leaders. So, so you've got a Jewish town connected to another Jewish town by this road, and you've got some some other travelers that are Jewish religious leaders, it's easy to come to the conclusion that this poor guy that got beat up along the road is a, is a Jewish guy. He's going from one Jewish town to another town. And, and many people have interpreted it that way over the years. And I want us to hold that loosely this morning. Jesus says that this man was attacked by robbers. We're, gonna, we're not going to look at the robbers this morning. That's another whole sermon. But Jesus paints in some robbers in this thing, uh, in this parable. And in verse 30, Jesus gives a description of what these robbers do to the traveler. They stripped him of his clothes. They beat him. And they went away, leaving him half dead. 
So the description that Jesus gives there is, is of a man laying beside the road who is naked, wounded, abandoned, and unconscious. Jesus is very intentional about painting those details into this parable. And what Jesus has just done when he includes those words is he has made it impossible for anybody to know who this man is. It's impossible because the things that would have identified who he is have all been taken away from him. And we both know, we, we all kind of understand in the, in, in the Middle East what a person wears and what a person wore in those days defined who they were. A religious leader wore certain clothes. A wealthy person wore certain things. Their headgear might, might indicate from what clan or tribe they are. All of these things were important to them, and Jesus makes sure to remove all of those. The man's clothes have been stolen from him. And then the other way to try to discern who somebody is, it has to do with their voice, right? If you can ask the person a question, hey, where are you from? Um, you, you, you could learn something about that person. And the third thing that they used to discern in that day is accent, a person's accent. We read in other places in the scripture where people heard some of Jesus' disciples talking and said, oh, you're from Galilee. We, we can tell by your accent that you're, we're using the same language, but your accent gives you away. You're from Galilee. And Jesus has removed every one of those opportunities from this traveler who was beat up. There is no way for the other travelers to discern who this is on the road. This makes our lawyer friend uncomfortable. And Jesus makes it a little more uncomfortable where he introduces the hated Samaritan as the hero in the story. Now he's made this guy quite uncomfortable. Now, as we look at the passage today, Jesus never answers the man's question. Remember his question? Well, who is my neighbor? Jesus never verbally answers the question, but by, by creating this parable... And in this word picture, Jesus makes it abundantly clear that neighbor is someone who needs a neighbor. That's Jesus' entire criteria. It is need-based. It is not based on ethnicity, religious belief, socioeconomics, education, or any other metrics. None of those matter. The traveler desperately needed a neighbor, and that's all that matters. There's no other criteria that have any importance in this particular situation. Jesus ends then by introducing a new and better question to the lawyer, which we find in verse 36 when Jesus says to him, which of these three do you think was a neighbor? To the man who fell into the hands of robbers. And the response comes in verse 37. It's kind of a begrudging response because the man says, the one who had mercy on him. He can't name this man like Jesus named him as a Samaritan. And, and, and he can't even let that word roll off his tongue 
the one who had mercy on him, answers the religious leader. And Jesus' final word is simply go and do likewise. And by saying that, Jesus is saying, make the Samaritan your example. Follow his lead. Do what the Samaritan did. He's your example of somebody who loves his neighbor. So how do we apply what Jesus calls this second command to love our neighbors as ourselves? How do we apply that to us today? Well, first off, from this parable, we can see that we don't get to decide who is and isn't our neighbor. It's not an option. It's not, it's, it's not up to us. And according to Jesus, if someone is in our proximity and needs a neighbor, our charge is to be a neighbor to them and to reflect that love of God that we have received on that individual who is indeed our neighbor. Now, I've learned enough over the past few years about New Community Covenant Church, Logan Square, to know that you as a church have discovered some ways to be a neighbor in kind of a corporate sense. Very appropriate. Very, very commendable. Two weeks ago, I was here on a Wednesday. I had no idea what goes on around here on Wednesdays. Uh, I was just meeting up with somebody, but I ended up downstairs, and it looked like the back room at Mariano's. And, and I'm looking at these cartons of food stacked upon each other and fresh vegetables and fruit and dairy and beans and rice. And it's like, this is overwhelming. What's going on here? And somebody explained to me that, that, that this is part of the ministry of this church to feed hungry people around here. I said, oh, well, does this happen like what, a couple times a year? No, every Wednesday this happens. And I was just, I was flabbergasted to see that. But, but somebody here has identified neighbors who are hungry and said, well, we can do something about it. We can be a neighbor in that situation. And, 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 I, and I salute you for that. Thank you for being attentive to that. And on, on a, maybe a seemingly smaller scale, I have it on pretty good, um, pretty good intel that right before Halloween this year, like, like day of, 11th hour, some of your staff members said, hey, wait a minute, we're not doing anything for Halloween for the kids here in the neighborhood. Well, we should do something. And somebody went out and bought some candy. It was probably half price at that time, which is a good value. Somebody set up a folding table right outside those doors on the sidewalk. And three of your staff members hung around there in the evening as the children with their parents started coming out trick-or-treating. And as, as, as people came with their kids and they got, gave candy to them, there was some interaction with the parents. And the message was transmitted that, oh, this church here is for all of us. This is for you, too. We, we welcome you to come worship with us on Sundays. And several people have done just that. They've shown up here because somebody did a neighborly thing and put some candy out on a table out front and then chatted with people. These are, these are amazing responses to this mandate to love our neighbors. Y'all have done well at that. But then there's also this individual response. And in the parable, Jesus just makes it one person, this one Samaritan, 
that was going down the road that day. And there was one significant difference between the Samaritan who went down the road and the two religious leaders that preceded him down the road. And that is that the Samaritan was alert to what was going on. The, these two religious leaders, they, out of the corner of their eye, they saw something different over there, but we're not sure what that's about, and they gave wide berth to this individual and, 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 and left him behind with no help. But Jesus, again, as, as, as he's painting this, this parable for us, he, he picks up a fine brush and he says that the, the Samaritan saw this individual and he went to him and he met his immediate needs by cleaning his wounds and bandaging him. And he arranged for his ongoing healing by putting him on his donkey and taking him to an inn where he could recuperate from the trauma that he has experienced. And as the lawyer admitted, eventually, the Samaritan was the one who truly was a neighbor to the man who needed a neighbor. Now, New Community, you've received a command from Jesus to love your neighbors as yourselves. And I commend you for those ways you've done that in a, in a corporate way and have reached out to your neighbors right here. But I want to challenge all of us here today to be very alert to other neighbors that God has placed on our roads that we're traveling, people who are desperate for a neighbor might be somebody that lives close to you. They might be somebody in your workplace or at the gym or that you run into here and there. But they're out there. And Jesus' word for us regarding those neighbors is that the second commandment is like it, he says, like the first commandment. The second commandment is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. So the mandate is still valid for us today. And we need to be heads up and eyes open to see where God is inviting us to be neighbors to people who are desperate for a neighbor. Second commandment. The third and final one that we will look at has a different target altogether than either the first commandment or the second commandment. The scripture for this one is found in John chapter 13. The background is this is the last week of Jesus' life. He's in this upper room. He's with the 12 disciples. He's washing their feet, and he's teaching them, and they had the Last Supper together. And Judas, one of the 12, sneaks out during this dinner and never returns because he's the one who goes and betrays Jesus. And so Jesus is left with the 11 in the upper room. And, and our passage here is short, two verses long, John 13, 34, and 35. A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this will everyone know that you're my disciples if you love one another. Now look at this verse for a moment, and I want to point out a couple things to you that are very unique. Number one, as far as I can tell, Jesus never uses this language of new commandment except in this case right here. This is a singular event that's happening. That should catch our attention. 
This is different. Secondly, there's kind of a rule when you look at Scripture that if something is repeated twice in close proximity to each other, we should pause and say, well, why is it getting that special emphasis? In, this, in these two verses here, the message, the, the command that Jesus gives is repeated three times. And once again, I've looked, and I can't find another place in the Bible where something is repeated three times in close proximity like it is right here. These should catch our attention. Whoa, Jesus is doing something different here. He concludes this verse by saying that this action of loving one another is what's going to be the indicator to people around us that we are followers of Jesus Christ, how we get along with each other. Now, it's easy to look at this verse and say, well, yeah, you know, I get that. Jesus is kind of reframing, repackaging the second commandment to love your neighbor, right? Love neighbor, love one another. It's, it's all people. It's all kind of the same thing, right? Well, no, not, not right. Who is this command directed to? Who is, who is in the room where it happened? It's the 11 apostles. That's it. Jesus is not on the mountainside talking to 5,000 people and saying, love one another, new commandment. Jesus is in an intimate setting with, with these 11 who will be charged with carrying on the ministry of Jesus after the resurrection and when Jesus returns to the Father. It's an inward-focused command where, where love neighbor was out there wherever your neighbors may be. This, this is not that at all. This is 11 guys in the room with Jesus. And what Jesus is telling these 11 guys is pick up your mirrors and start shining them at each other. Start reflecting the love of God on those of you in this room. See, Jesus knows that how these 11 and the future church will manifest the love of God internally towards each other will be one of the loudest messages that they can communicate to a watching world. It's, 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 it's countercultural, it's unexpected, and it will get the attention of people who need to know Jesus. Now, the 11 needed this commandment given to them because they weren't doing such a good job of loving one another. If we look back in Scripture, we find out these guys, they get in arguments with each other about who is the greatest of them. And, and then they, they, they kind of jockey for position like, oh, Jesus is going to set up his kingdom, and I want to sit on the right-hand side, and I want to sit on the left-hand side of Jesus. And Jesus is saying, no, there isn't a place for this among you. You're the guys that are going to be the leaders of the church, and you need to be loving one another. Jesus knew that they would make a radical, powerful, and public statement by how they treated each other among the 11. John 13, 35, by this will everyone know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Now, this command to love is not a command to uniformity. It's not like we got to all be the same, we got to all think the same, we have to all do... No, not at all. This is, this is a command 
to unity in the midst of diversity, loving one another in spite of the differences among us. And Jesus is saying that the future of the church depends on it. A couple of weeks ago, I was having a phone conversation with one of my colleagues in another state, and he had just been, uh, he, he'd served in this church for quite some time as a middle school youth minister. And he had just been moved into the position of executive pastor in the church. And this gentleman is, is quite a bit younger than me. Um, and, and there were some people in the church that thought, no, he's too young to do that job. But there's some of us, many of us, who know this guy that know he's, he's more than qualified to do this job. And so very early on, he had uh, to go into the leadership team meeting uh, for part of their meeting to um, present some financial um, updates to the leadership team. And there was one gentleman on the leadership team there who was older than this guy, and he just gave him the hardest time in the meeting. He questioned everything he said. He, he, he kind of dis downgraded this guy and wasn't taking him seriously. And as, as, as my friend was recounting this to me, the word jerk just kept popping up in my mind. Why is this guy acting like such a jerk? This is, this is the new executive pastor in the church. Be supportive of him. And I found myself, as I was listening to how this played out, getting kind of upset with this other person who was treating him that way. And when we got to the end of the conversation, my friend told me that he was kind of having similar thoughts to that while this was going on. But in the end, he decided that his plan of action was going to be to invite this guy out for lunch. Yeah, that never crossed my mind. And he said, I invited him out to lunch, and we went and had lunch together. And I was able to just honestly say to him, what's up? Why did, that, why did that happen in the leadership team meeting the other day? And the guy kind of broke down, and he, he said, you're the second person that said something to me about that lately. I got some stuff I need to work on. Now, if, now if my friend would have just kind of written this guy off as a jerk, they, they would just still have a strained relationship. But because he was willing to say, no, 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 I'm going to get right into his life, and I'm going I'm to be honest with him, it gave them an opportunity to be reconciled to each other. And it gave this guy who was acting pretty much like a jerk an opportunity to realize that he needed to make some changes. That's loving one another within the church. Because now if those two can, can keep building on a good and healthy relationship with each other, it's going to be noticed. It's going to be noticed. Love one another in spite of the differences among us. Now, new community, you're in an interesting season right now, to say the least. And there's a lot of moving pieces going on here. And there's a lot of questions about the future. And you've got a great pastoral search committee that's doing their job. But for right now, it may not look like much is happening. But you have the opportunity right now to make sure that you are fulfilling the new commandment within yourselves. Pastor or no pastor, long wait or short wait, 
you can be working on that right now within the community of the New Community Covenant Church family. I see how Jesus presented these three commands, the first, the second, and the new. And I'd like to suggest that we get a little creative here at the very end this morning. I think absolutely spot on, Jesus. First and greatest commandment, love God with everything in us. Yes and amen. And then the second commandment, to love your neighbor, followed after that. And then all the way at the end of Jesus' ministry in the last week of his life, he throws in this new commandment. I would like to suggest for us that the new commandment rightfully belongs in between the first and the second. Now, why do I say that? Because if we can get this thing figured out about loving one another, that will position us as a church, as the body of Christ, to truly be effective at loving our neighbors. Now, if we don't get that love one another right, there's still going to be some neighbor loving going on, but it's going to be greatly diminished. And I think that that new commandment rightfully belongs in between the first and the second so that we can explode in ways of demonstrating our love to our neighbors. Any group of followers of Jesus that is known by their love for one another will send a powerful and attractive message, and to use the words of Jesus, to everyone, to everyone. You won't be able to keep it a secret. Loving neighbor can and should take place in our individual lives, but the impact of that love is multiplied exponentially when the church, the body of Christ, is seen and known as a bunch of dissimilar people who truly love one another. As we close this morning, I just want to leave you with, with three questions. They're not going to be on the screen. They're short. I'm going to read the question and just give you a moment to reflect on that. And we'll move through the three and we'll be finished. The first question, church, is simply this. How could you up your game in terms of Jesus' new command to love one another? Second question, do you spend most of your time with people who are very much like you and therefore easy to love? Finally, how might God be leading you to shine his love more broadly among your church family?
pray with me?